this letter to the Thessalonian church, the first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, was potentially the first letter that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote. It is a letter uh, really of joy. Um, it's, it's a letter in which he really regales on the Thessalonian church. As a matter of fact, he, at the end of chapter 2 here, he says, What is our hope or joy? Or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus said is coming, is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. We see that the Apostle Paul, as is true uh, of us who have been called to uh, a life in Christ, those of us who are redeemed recognize that our brothers and sisters in Christ are uh, united to us in such a way as uh, our own joy is necessarily attached to to them, to their own walk with God. The same is true of children and parents, for instance. There is, there is a connection between the faithfulness of children and the joy of parents that is unbreakable. Uh, many perhaps wish that they could, because sometimes children can bring much grief, but nonetheless... God in heaven can, of course, comfort those in those situations, and we see him in his fullness there as well. But nonetheless, the letter of First Thessalonians is filled with sweetness, and I would also encourage you to see that uh, it is also a letter that can describe to us the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life. And also the means of its creation and flourishing the normal Christian life and the means of its creation and flourishing. In other words, how does God how does God bring to an individual person the life of Christ? What does it look like? We see, for instance, in this letter that it has to do, for instance, with imitation. It has to do with this idea that God sends a people or individuals to people such that they might hear the gospel, learn the gospel, walk in the gospel, and it involves imitating those people. And so that certainly is one of the reasons why uh, there is such a, a standard for those who would proclaim the gospel. We also see, of course, that the life, the normal Christian life, is a life that is very dynamic. And we see that here in this passage as well. So I'd like to draw your attention really to the first two chapters of this letter, and the two chapters fit one in the other. The one really explains the other in a sense, and they really, I think, bring a significant comprehensive nature to to the entire letter itself. Um, I did not uh, uh, plan uh, necessarily that this uh, proclamation would come on Father's Day. Nonetheless, uh, I do rejoice in that. I'm very happy uh, in Father's Day. I'm happy to take advantage of this opportunity as we think about fatherhood. Certainly, there are some descriptions of fathers here uh, that I think uh, we all need to hear. Uh, And so, I would encourage you to think along those lines as well. And so, let's look. Uh, We see here, um, in verse 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Now, uh, I won't belabor the point, but nonetheless, we're looking at the normal Christian life, 
right? And what we see here, uh, the Apostle Paul, for instance, he reveals to us what is normal for him. As a matter of fact, it is normal for the Apostle Paul to constantly mention others in his prayers and to do it with thanksgiving. So, you say, well, yeah, I pray a little bit. Okay. You need to know that that's not normal. It's not normal to pray a little bit. (laughs) The normal Christian life is a life of constant prayer with thanksgiving, directed to other people. Right Now, what I mean by that is, uh, often it's very difficult for us to move away from ourselves in our prayers. But the Apostle Paul here is stating in something that may seem on the surface of a letter, that what's normal for him is to pray continually with thanksgiving for others. For others. There's a focus that isn't on self in the Apostle Paul's normal prayers. And so this is an important idea for us. And so we move on. He says in verse 3, Remembering before our God and Father, I want you to see three things here. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The normal Christian life is a life of blood, of sweat, of tears. The mortal combat against one's personal sin. The stubborn hope in the goodness of Christ and His ways amidst the affliction of life referenced in verse 6. And thirdly, the sacrificial service. Devoid of every self-centered spin, this world touches everything with. And so we see again that that uh, the Apostle Paul is drawing us into that which is normal. And we, we see here, and we're, we're inclined and we're tempted as God's people, even as we think about the goodness of God, the words of God, and these, the aspects of life that he says here, a work of faith, a labor of love, a steadfastness of hope, right? We're inclined to say, yes, <laughs> That's all really good, but you don't know how busy I am right now. Do you have any idea what kind of demands are being made of me? Do you know how I feel right now, physically? Do you know how ill I am right now? Right? The Apostle Paul says, again, that in verse 6, "...you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction." with the joy of the Holy Spirit in much affliction. In other words, the Thessalonians realized that there was no better day coming in which they might receive Christ. There was no better day coming in which they might walk in the Lord. There was no better day coming for the mortal combat against their personal sins. There was no better day coming for them to have a stubborn hope in the goodness of Christ. There was no better day coming for them to involve themselves in a sacrificial service. The normal Christian life is dynamic. It's intensely relational. It's intimately involved with other people. It's a life which alone can lay claim to true joy. Do you want to be joyful? 
I want to be joyful. I want to, I like to be joyful. There's no, there's no possible way to be joyful aside from Christ. And Satan deceives day after day after day with the emptiness of looking for joy somewhere else. He takes advantage of the fact that God's creation and humanity is of all things hopeful. Even the unbeliever is hopeful. And the unbeliever is deceived to be hopeful that he will find joy in something other than fulfillment in Christ. And he will go on sweating with tears day after day after day, never being joyful, having cast away Christ the Savior. The only way to approach this experience is in the context, this joyful context of of being a part of a faithful church, the body of believers for which Christ gave his life. We see that the Apostle Paul describes this normal Christian life as profoundly new. Many people see no inconsistency with the Christianity they claim and a wholehearted devotion to themselves. What their minds really focus on is the likes they have on their social media, their next tattoo, the next worldly book they can invest in, the next game they can conquer, the next opportunity to display self, to love self, to have self stroked. This is not the profound newness of joy in Christ. This has nothing to do with Christ. The Apostle Paul is describing for us the normal Christian life. That's what, he, that's what he's describing to us. The Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 and 23, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Greg Morse of Desiring God Ministries wrote a recent article entitled Goats in Sheep's Clothing, addressing the problem of lukewarm Christianity and the urgency of warning them. I can send you that article. Of course, it's accessible online. Greg Morse, Desiring God's Ministries. Often, when we think of someone in sheep's clothing, uh, we think of wolves in sheep's clothing as a reference to leaders in the church. But what Greg Morse is referring to is goats in sheep's clothing. It's a lukewarm Christianity. And I'm... I struggle to put lukewarm with Christianity because I am not persuaded that those who are lukewarm are in Christianity. Uh, and so I think it's an important idea that we recognize. And the Apostle Paul addresses this very thing here because he says that you receive the Word of God with power. With power. And what he's getting at here is this idea that, yes, there was an absolute confirmation that 
that new life is here. And I want to be straight and I want to be clear with you this morning. You say, well, no one warned me about that. No one warned me about lukewarm Christianity. Nobody said that being a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ had something to do other than me simply affirming that there is a such thing as a God and there is a such thing as Jesus and there is a such thing as sin. That does not make you a Christian. But I want each of you to know today that I am personally, personally endorsed by my Master to tell you individually today and to hear me that if this is your idea of Christianity, you are not going to be in heaven. It is not merely mental sin. It is, yes, I believe in God. The Bible says, even the demons believe and shudder. Even the de- what does that mean? Well, what that means is, the demons know full well in an almighty, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing God. But they will not, they will not submit themselves to Him in a life of holiness. They reject the redemption of God. Right? There is no power. They receive the Word of God as it is the Word of men. For you to merely know there is a God and acknowledge Him, for you to merely know that there is a Savior and He saves, does not make you redeemed. The Apostle Paul is being very clear and plain here. This is the normal Christian life. We have partitioned lives. We say we love God at church, but we chat with our friends on the phone in ways that are wicked and devoid of the power of God. Verse 4 says, We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. How does He know that? How does the Apostle Paul know that God has chosen them for Salvation, He says right here in verse 5, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Power. Not a surface affirmation of the truths of God. Not mere acknowledgement of the confession's orthodoxy. Not a Sunday morning nicety. A question for us, has the Word of God come in power to you? When a person takes up the cross of Christ and leaves his wretched past, he doesn't come back. Leonard Ravenhill says there are two kinds of people in this world. Those who are dead in sin and those who are dead to sin. Those who are dead in sin and those who are dead to sin. The distinction is the power. The power of God. You can be dead in sin, or you can be dead to sin. Of course, the redeemed are dead to sin. Many people profess faith in Christ, but they can't wait to go back to their sin. They love the world and the things of the world. They spend a laborious hour in church and can't wait to leave. 
The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, that they have the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. He goes so far to say in the same verse that we should avoid such people. If the ideas of the proclamation of the living Word of God, the ideas of mortal combat involving the sin that besets you day by day, if those things to you are laborious and tiresome and distasteful, things that you have no interest in entering into, things that you have no desire to do, then I can assure you that heaven will be hell for you. And that in all likelihood, you will not be going in the state that you're in. If you hate holiness, you will hate heaven. Because heaven is a place of holiness. And so, the Apostle Paul again, this is he is regaling with joy in the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life is a life filled with joy. It's a life filled with relational warmth. It's a life filled with church connections. It's a life that's centered on the things of the gospel. But it's very hard for us to peel back all of the layers of our cultural foolishness that's sometimes called Christianity and look and see what is the normal Christian life. Power. The realities of the new birth shown to be real. The three attributes of verse 3 and also in verses 6 through 10. By the power of God, the Thessalonians were able to joyfully replicate those sent with the gospel to them. They viewed the lifestyle of the gospel laborers as not merely worthy of imitation, but found that by necessity of the new birth, their lives would have to begin to look more and more like the lives of those faithful believers. You say, well, I have a unique kind of walk. My Christianity looks different than other people's. Well, the Apostle Paul is saying, if it isn't normal Christianity, like what he's regaling with with the Thessalonians here, then it isn't Christianity. That's what he's saying. Now, the point isn't that everyone wears a dark suit and a blue tie. That's not the point. Right? Right? But the point is, is the Thessalonians recognized that a certain aspect of new life in Christ was imitating faithful believers. And you know what? That's really, really hard for people that are self-absorbed. Because they think everyone should be imitating them. Right? And so, the Apostle Paul, again, is drawing our attention to this idea of the importance of imitating, of course, primarily the Lord Jesus Christ and those who follow Him. He says in verse 1-6, You received the word in much affliction. They didn't put it off. Though the situation of them receiving the gospel was filled with normal life demands, attacks by Judaizers, and the daily hardships of living in the first century, those who were redeemed received the gospel in the midst of those challenges with the joy of the Holy Spirit. It was real. 
The transformation occurred. As a matter of fact, they did exactly that thing which all normal disciples do. They made disciples. Because the Apostle Paul says right here at the end of chapter 1, he says, verse 8, Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son in heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now, what is the Apostle Paul talking about? Well, this is what he's talking about. It's just as if the Apostle Paul said, hey, you know what? Let's go share the gospel in all those places where the people in Thessalonica hang out. Let's, let's share the gospel where they are. And they go, and you know what? What do they find there? <laughs> the gospel is already here. These people are reporting to us that the Thessalonians have come to faith in Christ. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul literally rolls in there and he says, Whoa! There's nothing for me to do here! The Thessalonian church has been so faithful and confirmed that the Holy Spirit came with power that we're moving on. They have, as a matter of fact, these people now that we're sharing the gospel with, they're giving us a full account of what we told the Thessalonians. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, think of it. This is, this is the normal Christian life. That, that those around us would know that the Holy Spirit's work came with power. Again, a warning to you. If, you. if this is not in some way in its own seed form present in your own soul, then I'm warning you by the power of the Holy Spirit based on the Word of God right here. Beware. Flee to Christ. He will receive you. Now, we also see that, that this this. Normal Christian life is also a means of creation and flourishing. The Apostle Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 2, You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. You know. You know. You know. What's he saying? The Thessalonians, you, you, the church in Thessalonica, you know, as a matter of fact, he says it in verse, verse 5 of chapter 1, you know, and 2, 1, you know, 2, 2, you know, 2, 5, you know, 2, 11, you know, 3, 3, you know, 3, 4, you know, 4, 2, you know, you know. What is he saying? Look, we, you know who we are. What is conspicuous about us? And this is a good thing about fathers today. We think about what's conspicuous, right? The Apostle Paul again is saying, you, you can report as you already have those things that stood out among you because of who we are as people. He's going to get to that in chapter 2. But dads, let me ask you a question. The people around you know stuff about you. They know about you. What do they know? They know he's grumpy in the morning.
They know he's got to have his beard oil. They know he likes his car. They know he likes to use a chainsaw. They know what kind of gun he shoots and how good he is with it. They know that he likes sausage cooked on the grill. These are not bad things. But none of these show up on Paul's list in chapter 2. What does he say? He says, you know. And this is a window into the simplicity, the transparency, and the soundness and the blameless lives of these men who brought the gospel. You know. Now, this simplicity is an important idea. The idea of simplicity may be one of the most misunderstood attributes of God because it sounds simple. It sounds like we're saying... Uh, that God is somehow infantile or elementary when we say that He's simple, that He is a simple being. It sounds like we're attributing naivete to God or a certain something that He doesn't know or maybe that He would rather not know. But simplicity has absolutely nothing to do with what those things would imply. The attribute of simplicity in God has to do with soundness, with thoroughness, with consistency. The idea that God is a simple being is that He isn't partitioned. The opposite of simplicity would be duplicity. Duplicity is being two-faced. I'm one way over here and I'm another way over here. that the Apostle Paul could ask and proclaim to the Thessalonian church, you know what kind of people we were. You know what we were like. We were with you all the time. We ate with you. We committed our lives to you. And so forth and so on. Simplicity. Again, it's an attribute of God that should be a goal of the redeemed. Soundness, completeness, uniformity in essence. Verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So here's the Apostle Paul. They come to the Thessalonian church coming off Philippi. They get flung out of town in Philippi. They get harshly treated and they roll into Thessalonica and they say, Oh man, we need a spa! Can somebody make me those cookies I like? Is that what he said? No. No, they proclaimed the word boldly. <laughs> they, they didn't slow down. They, they didn't stop. 
right? The same Apostle Paul and Timothy and Sylvanus, there they are again. Simple men. Well, you guys are saying the same thing you did in Philippi. I mean, don't, didn't you want to change it up a little bit? Because, I mean, that didn't really go very well. No. Oh, no. No. No, this is the Gospel. This is the Word with power. He says in verse 3, Our appeal doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel, verse 4, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Tests our hearts. They had the joy of the Holy Spirit. Not with flattery or pretext, verse 5. They had hearts softened by the Word of God. They routinely had examinations by God through His Word, His ministers, and the fellowship of the saints. The routines of their lives were not shells of shallow, cheap grace, hollowed out Christianity. They didn't say empty Bible things to people to impress. They didn't pray to hear themselves speak. They poured out their hearts to God. In verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. The Apostle Paul knows his own heart. And he acknowledges that he can put up a pretense of holiness and it's a sham. And he rejects that. And he warns those who listen that you too can put up a pretext for holiness. And it will also be a sham in your life as well. But the Apostle Paul says, the Word of God comes to the redeemed with power, confirmed by a faithful life. Now, the Apostle Paul here, in verse 7, he begins to describe the kind of men they were. Verse 5 of chapter 1, he says, You know what kind of men we prove to be for your sake. Now, this isn't only for fathers, but this is the specific fatherhood section, if you will. So, go ahead and get your pens out. Well, we notice that the very first illustration that the Apostle Paul uses for this fatherly masculinity when he answers the question in chapter 1, what kind of men were we? That the Apostle Paul actually has to reach into the experience of nursing motherhood to do that. Please don't get up and leave right now, okay? 
I'm just looking at the Bible here. He says, We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, I call this durable tenderness. Any man can be tender on the right occasion. But is that tenderness durable? In other words, is it a simple tenderness? The Lord Jesus Christ said to the apostles, Let the little children come. Guess what? Little children might have been annoying in the first century like maybe they are in this century. But they're not the only ones that can be annoying, right? The Lord Jesus Christ talks about this durable tenderness. And the Apostle Paul says, like a nursing mother, and mind you, this wasn't any nursing mother. There's another modifier to this nursing mother, and what is it? Well, she's not with anyone's children. She's with her own children. She's with her own children. This durable tenderness. Verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. I refer to this as sacrificial affection. Sacrificial affection. Many of us are ready and able to share the basic tenets of the gospel with people. That's good. That's very good. But are you ready to sacrificially share yourself with people? Right? That's what the Apostle Paul says. That's the kind of men they were. Right? They sacrificially... right with affection, share not only the tenets of the gospel, but their very lives, our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Verse 9, you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. At this new church start, it was, even, it was even common in that day for those who received teaching to provide financially for the teachers. And the Apostle Paul said, We labored night and day not to make these demands of you that you might receive the gospel. Sacrificial affection. Verse 10, You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. I call this virtuous courage. Virtuous courage, integrity. We see this idea of virtue, the other attributes, particularly in Peter's writings. The idea of virtue has to do with with moral energy. That's the idea of virtue. Moral energy. It's not just... And this is... this. You can certainly mark our own culture today because when we think of virtue, we think of one thing. If a young woman has virtue, we think of one thing. Virtue used to be a word we referred to in the plural. It has to do with moral energy. 
And the Apostle Paul is talking about that here. Courageous integrity. Yeah, you can be loving on occasion. But is your lovingness so courageous that it breaks through the bad days, the flat tires, the car that doesn't work, when the AC goes out, when you forget something and have to go back? Does it make it through all of that? Can you still retain your affection and courage? This is the idea. The Apostle Paul is regaling in this durable tenderness, in this sacrificial affection, in this virtuous courage. He says, verse 11, You know how like a father with his children, verse 11, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. You know. You know. Verse 17, Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Yeah, the apostles, the apostle Paul got flung out of Philippi and he didn't get to stay in Thessalonica as long as he wanted to either. He says, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Make no mistake, setbacks in godly spiritual matters have demonic foundations. Satan hindered us. Satan never sleeps. He's an excellent organizer. He has logistics to take care of his demonic minions. And I trust that he is persuaded will last forever. But his days are numbered. But nonetheless, he is our adversary. And... A very serious one. Satan is very serious about your soul. Very serious. He's very serious about destroying your Christian witness. He's very serious about uh, placing uh, difficulties in your path to graciousness, to kindness, to these virtues of faithfulness that come with the power of God. But the Apostle Paul describes the normal Christian life as that life that overcomes those things by the power of God, by the joy of the Holy Spirit, by the unity of faith amongst the believers, by this transparent, simple lifestyle in which we we really know one another, we have relational warmth, we understand each other's sins, we grant forgiveness and we move on. In verse 19 and 20, he asked the question, 
chapter 2, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Now let's think about this for a minute. What is our joy, our hope, source of boasting? Now let's be real for a minute, okay? Let's be real for a minute. What is your source of joy in boasting? What is it that really jazzes you? What is it that, man, you're really... You get up in the morning and you're like, Oh boy, I'm really glad this is true about something. I'm really happy about this or that. I'm really thankful for this. He says, is it not you? Is it not you? This is absolutely revolutionary to our culture. That our source of boasting and glory is someone else. Someone else's walk. Someone else's faithfulness. Someone else's joy in the Lord. And the Apostle Paul says that this is the normal Christian life. This is the joy in the Lord. Can you see it? He says, you are our glory and joy. And let's think about the old Apostle Paul here, why don't we? Again, this is one of his first letters. One of his first letters, one of his last letters, likely his last letter, the second letter to Timothy there. We see that as he awaits his own execution. We, we still can see the gleam in his eye of this joy. The Apostle Paul, he's already told us before, of course, in his writings that he, he has learned the secret, right, of contentment of being abased and abound. The Apostle Paul, he has this, this unique kind of... You, you, you get around the guy, I expect, when he was on earth, you get around him and, and, and you, you, you look at his scars and his, his, his body and so forth, the challenges that he has, the difficulties he has moving and so forth, and you look at him and he's, he's got this cheerfulness and this joy and you just want to say, man, what is up with you? Man, what are... You are some kind of freak of nature, man. Why are you so joyful? What is up with this? What have you... You got some kind of secret, like, paradise island or something you go to on the weekends or something, or what? What is, what is up with you, man? <laughs> no. 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 He's, he has this joy of the Lord. It's real. And the Apostle Paul, he is affirming in these Thessalonians, look, this is, you guys have the real stuff. Let us rejoice in the Lord. That's the source of my own strength and glory. Is this. And may it be true of us. And may we be a people who who joyfully, in the midst of trying demands of our days, be a people who, who can be looked upon as those who are, have this 
otherworldly joy. Yes, we go on. Yes, we, we, we have lives that are faithful and true. Yes, we, we're relationally warm. Yes, we have challenges. Yes, we have hardships. Yes, I need to borrow your pickup truck. Yes, all of those things. And yes, we enjoy the truth of redemption in Christ. Let us pray.